Good morning. Our scripture today is in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master said to him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an encouraging parable, isn't it? I think it's encouraging. It's been pushing me all week and reminding me of uh, where I need to be thinking and how I need to be thinking. Just to give you a, a rewind of where we've been, Jesus is trying to encourage those listening to him about his return. So chapter 24, he's warning and encouraging his disciples that uh, there is going to be a terrible time of suffering coming before the return of the Son. And, and about halfway through that text, he begins talking about the glorious return of the Son of Man, the Son of God is coming back. And then in the end of chapter 24 and now through chapter 25, he is beginning to illustrate how that should affect us. And it's a good reminder, theology changes our lives. Right? Theology is not just meant to be something that we think about, it's not meant to be simply a truth we think about. It's meant to be a, a truth that leads us to behave, to believe, to feel differently about the world we live in. And so we come to this text here, and Jesus is reminding them that his return should have implications. And so he gives a story. And the story is, we use the word parable, but this parable is a parable of a master with three servants. Now, if we just read through the text really simply, 
He begins by explaining that this man is going to go on a journey. Right? Verse 14, he's going to go on a journey. We recognize that it's a long journey, that he's been gone for a long time, and he gives his talents. By the way, do not confuse talents for the way you think of talents. We talk about a talented person as having a lot of skills and abilities. The word talent here is a financial term. It's roughly the equivalent of 20 to 24 years of labor. That's how much value is in a talent. It's uh, 6,000 denarii. A denarii is the standard wage you would give a man for a full day of work, which is probably longer than eight hours as well. If you like, just drop that into today's economy, you're looking at somewhere between a million and two million dollars per talent. Okay, so when he gives five talents, that's 100 years worth of work. Labor's wage he's giving to this man. Two talents, of course, would be like 40 years, and then one talent would be 20 to 24 years of work. That's a lot of money. I know when I first read the parable, when I was younger, I was thinking, well, one talent, what are you supposed to do with that? I mean, here's a dollar, invest it well, son. It's like, you can't even, I mean, by the time you've gone to the store, you've spent it in gas, you've got nothing to invest in. But that's not the point of the parable. The point is not how shrewd you can be with just a little bit. In fact, we, we have a massive sum of money entrusted to these servants. And again, the NIV really helps us out. It, it translates it, bag of gold. Just in case you're thinking talented, you can't get out of your mind a talented person. The, the point is, this master goes, here's some gold for you, gold for you, gold for you, and they each get a lot but it's a different amount. Well, if you look at the text, we recognize that they do something significantly different with it. But before we get there, just considering the parable, what does Jesus mean when he talks about a bag of gold? Because that's clearly not the point. If it is, I'm still waiting for my bag. I don't know about you, but I have not gotten my bag of gold yet. The point isn't, isn't that we have literal money per se, I think the point is, is that our Creator, our Lord, has entrusted to us precious things. I use the thing, the word, things is like the most horrible word. It's like so generic. That's why it's a good word for this, because it's so generic. What has God given to you? Well, He's given to you years, He's given to you days upon days and hours and minutes. He's given you influence, and you may not feel very influential, but my guess is even as a young child in your home, you have levels of influence where if you are having a really grumpy, crabby, ornery day, the whole home is different, even at the age of six weeks, right? Like, we have influence, whether it's with your family or maybe at work or perhaps school with your friends. Among our church family members, we have influence, friends and people we love, neighbors and associates. We have massive amounts of influence with people around us. Most of us can speak. God has entrusted to you this treasure of communication with which God can use us as a conduit of his grace and mercy. Or with that same mouth, we can speak our own arrogance and make God look bad. Our mouths are an incredible gift of communication. They are, they are powerful to lift and encourage others or destroy them. It's amazing. This last week I've been watching the news and there seems to be this constant disappointment in mistakes made in communication in our leadership. Apparently, we basically confessed to invading the Ukraine. Accidentally. Apparently, we didn't 
invade the Ukraine. Words are just incredibly powerful right now, and we have a, a president and a leadership that, that's tiptoeing down lines of really bad communication just because they're not always thinking when they're speaking. God has given you words. Not only words, though. Think about the investment of your brain. Have you ever wanted to really help someone and you have no idea what to tell them? There are frequent times I experience this, and maybe you've been there. Someone comes to you and goes, hey, so I've got this, and they begin to lay out this problem, and you're like, yeah, that's a problem. And you're, you're sitting there thinking, what would I do? I don't even know what I would do. I don't know how to break this down for them. I, I don't know what to tell them to do. So what did you do for the last 10 years of your life to equip yourself for that conversation? Have you ever thought that maybe the reason you're sitting there going, I don't know, isn't because you don't have the intelligence or the time or the tools at your capacity, but simply because you never took the opportunity to learn God's wisdom. And so you come into a situation where God has strategically placed you to minister grace, and you're like, blah. You got nothing to give them. You have no wisdom to share with them from God's word, not your wisdom. You have no way to give hope to a discouraged heart. You have no way to direct them to look at Jesus in the middle of an ongoing, ever-present, discouraging trial, and you just are not even equipped to give any spiritual energy to the discouraged person talking to you. So not only do we have words as part of the investment vehicle God has given us, the bag of gold, but we have minds that drive those words that we need to recognize as part of this gift God has given to us. What about just energy? Time, your ability to work hard at stuff. There are plenty of people in this world that are, because of sickness, injuries, and accidents, do not have a body that can work hard. Some of you have lots of money, physical resources like a home or vehicles. Some of you are incredibly gifted with wisdom, but you're isolated and you never share it. Some of you are engaged with a lot of people, but you never work at pointing people to Christ. Or, in fact, you are very faithful at doing so. I think probably one of the most precious commodities we have is time given in association with others. Like, I like being by myself. I like my time. I don't like you to steal my time. And yet time is one of those precious things God's given me in my bag of gold. We talk about what this bag is that these people are given, these servants. The word there is doulos. It's translated slave in some translations. It's this idea of, of a person who's fully accountable to his master, to his Lord. And Jesus uses this and says, these each have been given this precious, precious amount of resources. And again, Please don't limit it to money. Of course, that is the, the storyline that Jesus gives. I want you to look again in the text with me. We come to chapter 25. He's given out these, these bags of gold, if you will. What happens as he does this? Look in verse 16. He who had received five talents. Again, we're looking somewhere in the realm of five to ten million dollars. What does he do? He went at once and traded with them. And he made his five talents more. He put his money to work. How long did it take him? 
Look at the text. Verse 16 tells us. He did this at once, immediately. He straight away took that money and began leveraging and working the money to grow it for his master. Look at the next verse. Verse 17. So also he who had two talents, that so also indicates in like way. In other words, what did he do? He went and made his two talents work, and he produced two more talents. Again, the parable is more amazing when you think of the amount of money these men produced. After taxes, after all the cost, after everything else, they have a profit margin of double. That's an incredible amount. Verse 18, but he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. just want you to notice there's a theological point made right in that section talking about the one-talent guy. The man who owes only one bag of gold, look at what it says. He who had received this one bag of gold went and dug in the ground and hid whose money? Did you catch that? Now, if we, if we walk back I was just trying to tease out what it might look like for that bag of gold in your life. Your time, your, your brain, your relationships, your home, your family, your vehicles, your money, all of those things. Who does Jesus say owns them? Right? Do you see that there? It's his master's bag of gold still. So it's not as though the master says, here, this is for you. He says, here, this is mine for you to invest for me. And you consider that then, as you, can, as you look through your home, as you look through your life, as you consider your coworkers, as you go to school and you have friends, Jesus is standing over every one of those items in our life saying, that's mine. Mine too, still mine. And he's looking through all of your life, and you think you have something maybe you call personal time. And she says, no, you don't. It's mine. Stop stealing it from me. Right? This is my baby. This is my car. I have been wanting my whole life to get a classic Mustang. I finally got it. It's mine. She says, no, 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 it's mine. And when you drive my car, drive it for me. It's mine. In fact, this comes around on, on the wicked servant. As you consider how he is interacting with his talent. Look in verse 27. He is getting rebuked. He's getting judged. Verse 27, the Lord says to him, you ought to have invested whose money? My money. The basis of his judgment is who owns the money. That was my money. It should have been used for me. You should have invested it for me, the Lord says. That was for my goals, not your goals. I gave you this bag of gold so that you could take my money and invest it for me. Uh, Jesus Christ is giving this parable to preach to us the importance. I'm going to just use this really theologically deep word. The importance of work. Make use the word hard work. Now, the reason I think that's a helpful way to think through it is 
If someone gave you a million dollars and said, hey, I'll be back in six years, this better be double. What are you going to have to do? <laughs> right? You're going to have to work hard. Whatever you're probably expert in, you are going to have to get more expert in. Because you've got to figure out in a few years how to make the most of this incredibly rich resource. If someone said, hey, Mark, here's a buck. I'm going to come back in five years. It better be doubled. I know what I would do. I'd pull another buck out of my wallet. I'd stick them both on my dresser and leave it. <laughs> like, it's doubled. But the point is, is this incredible resource has been granted to each of God's servants, and we are accountable for working hard with it. So here's the question. Why did the bad servant get it wrong? Why did the good servants get it right? Maybe you're reading the parable differently than me, but if you're reading it like me, you're thinking, I want to be one of the good servants. Right? Like, I, I, want to be, I want to be on the side that when Jesus comes back, he looks at me and he doesn't say, depart from me. I, I want, when the Lord comes back, for him to look at me and say, you've done really good. And look, at, look at the response here. As we've gone through it now, I, I think you've seen, they've, they've all been entrusted with this incredibly rich resource. We have two of the three have invested and worked hard and one of them has buried it. What happens to treasure when you bury it? I know some teenagers thinking pirates steal it. Nothing happens to it. It stays there. It didn't grow. It doesn't amplify. It doesn't bring the master his, his joy. So as you come down to the response, verse 21. And I do think Jesus is preparing his, his people. If, if you look Scripture says he returns after a long time, doesn't it? So if you're to back up, verse 18, but he who had received one talent when dug in the hole, verse 19 now, after a long time the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done. Excellent. Good work. That's the point. Right? It's an exclamation of favor for doing a job excellently. Now look what he says. Good and faithful slave. So he starts with, you've done great. Now he defines who that slave is. He's what? He is Good, and he is faithful. And now he describes, you've been faithful over a little. So if you're thinking dollar, you're to be excused. When he says faithful over a little, though, there's a comparison and contrast going on here. You've been faithful over $10 million, and that's a little. That's not much. That's insignificant. Again, if you're thinking of that in years, that's a hundred plus years of labor that money represents. And Jesus says, that's chump change. That's little. Right? Going back to that text, you have been faithful over this little amount. Now what does he say? I will set you over, over what? Over much. So here's the contrast, right? Little is 10 million. Much 
is the eternal condition. It's the reward forever. And so he's showing us that we have a tendency, I mean, let's just be honest, $10 million is probably a lot of money even for the richest guys in the room. Right? $10 million is a lot of cash. And Jesus says that's not to be compared with the incredible honor that's in store for those who are faithful in this life. I, I'm not a good assessor of values on most things. I think right now used cars are way too expensive having just purchased one. I think homes in Bakersfield are way too expensive having looked at home prices. I must not really understand values, but if Jesus says this is little and this is much, I'm pretty confident, you can agree with me, he knows how to value things. And so if you're thinking this is a lot, you need to understand how much more is in store for those who are faithful. Here's much. He says, I will put you over much. It indicates a position of leadership and authority in the eternal condition. That is, in eternity, probably in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ establishes an economy of governance and rulers. In this world, people will fight tooth and nail to be a governor, a senator, a president, right? I mean, they will, they will bleed millions of dollars of their own money and your money trying to get that position. They will sell their soul to have authority and influence and power in this world. How much more should the Christian be devoted to being welcomed by the Savior and granted this position? Uh, Revelation 3 speaks to the same issue where Jesus says, You will sit with me on my throne. When I come back. And so there's this promise that one day God's people will rule and reign with him that runs through the New Testament documents. And Jesus indicates here your placement in that kingdom is a byproduct of your faithfulness today. So your hard work today produces what for you tomorrow? Something of incredibly more value that cannot fade away and cannot be taken away. So Jesus says that that this man gets this incredible reward. He'll be put in a position over others. And then he says, enter into what? Enter into the joy of your Lord. Uh, The phrase is a little bit ambiguous, but it seems to say, come and celebrate with much joy with me. Maybe, Maybe going back to the wedding feast idea, where Jesus is considered the groom, and they're going to a celebration of this wedding. Normally, wedding celebrations are a time of fun and celebration and goodness and sweetness and enjoyment. The picture here, of course, is that Jesus Christ, welcoming his servants, gives them entry into a place of great joy with him. Again, if Jesus says, I will be experiencing joy, I know I'll experience joy. Parties are really not my thing. So the idea of going to a big, huge wedding party does not sound really fun to me. That sounds like something my wife would enjoy and drag me to. But if Jesus says to me, this is a place of deep joy, then that's exactly what it will be for me. It'll be a place of incredible joy. So again, we want to ask the question, what did this man do? He worked hard. 
Now, just to, just to hit quickly, the second servant who had two talents, look at his account here. Verse 23, his master says to him, Well done, excellent job, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the exact word-for-word word sentence that the other man got. And so the big alternative, the big contrast then, is the unfaithful servant. So moving forward to the unfaithful servant, look down in verse 26. He explains he hid it in the ground. The reason he hid it in the ground is his bad theology, he says, right? Verse 24, he says, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Now, when you read that, does that fit with your theology of who Jesus is? Is Jesus a hard, exacting master who reaps where he has not sown seed? That's not who our Lord is. But, but this man has used his bad theology as an excuse to not serve Jesus Christ. He, he, he's suggesting that for him to risk money by investing and by working the money hard, he's putting at risk the master's money, and therefore he's more prudent, prudent by not risking it at all, but burying it in the dirt. But I want you to think about what his theology is actually suggesting. He is suggesting to Jesus, you reap a harvest where you planted no seed. But Jesus literally in the illustration planted the seed of like a million to two million dollars. So how much more harvest would be expected from that than from a place where there was no seed given? This man's theology is, it's not only not like our Lord, it's nonsense. Because if he expected a master who's harsh and demanding, what would he have done with it? <laughs> he probably would have done two things. Invested and worked like crazy because he knows he's going to be held accountable by a master who doesn't handle disappointment. Or he would refuse the call in the first place. Hey, perhaps he would just hit a runner and take the money and hide. But the point is, is, is his theology suggests he should have worked hard because he, he expects a harsh judgment, an exacting demand. But what did he actually do? Well, it looks like he probably did about a day of labor on the front side and the back side. He dug a hole, and then he dug it up. <laughs> the master's gone for a long, long time. And I'll tell you what, if he entrusts you with with a million or two million worth of, of dollars or bag of gold, you're going to do more than just dig a hole. I want you to look at Jesus' words because I think this is so insightful of our Lord. Verse 26, but his master answered him and said, you, what? You wicked and slothful servant. Sloth is not a modern word, but you could probably just translate this as simply, you wicked and lazy slave. Was the problem his theology? No. His theology was nonsense, which is why Jesus uses it as a measuring stick in just a moment to judge him by. What's the real issue with this slave? He's, he's lazy, and he doesn't love Jesus. He's wicked. 
Go back to the other servants. They were good and faithful. Instead of wicked, they were good. Instead of lazy, they were faithful. This is the opposite of what a slave is supposed to be. You're lazy. In other words, you don't want to work hard. You're lazy. I think what we have going on here, and I've heard before, certain theologies can lead to problems practically. It's probably not untrue, but I think a lot of times it's more that our hearts want us to not do what we should do. And then we use theology to make it sound good. But I've heard before that Calvinists don't evangelize. I've heard before that covenant people don't evangelize. I pretty much think Christians have a hard time evangelizing. I don't know that theology is the issue. I think fear, laziness, and pride are the issue. That's just my own confession, honestly. I've never thought, man, I don't know if God will save them. I have thought, huh, this is really hard. I don't know how to bring the gospel up without just being weird. Or I'm afraid that if I bring it up, I'll offend them and they'll never talk to me again and I won't have a better chance sometime in the future. And for years I'll think that, not recognizing that I've lost all the chances in the interim. I don't think theology is his primary problem. His primary problem is that the center of his love life is himself. The center of his values is himself. The reason he's lazy is because he doesn't want to do work for his master. He wants to live for himself. The problem with his theology is not simply that he's twisted who his Lord is. It's that his theology has him as the king and center of it. And so he's a wicked and lazy slave. So what happens to this lazy and wicked slave? Verse 28. Well, let me go back to verse uh, 26 and 27 just to explain it. Uh, the ma- master calls him wicked and lazy. He says, if you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with my interest. Now, his point is, I'm going to judge you on the basis of your claim. You say I'm harsh? You say I ask for more than I give? You say that I'm unfair? Okay, well then, you should have behaved in light of what you say you believe. And on that basis, I'm going to judge you. And how does that go for this man? Verse 28, so take the talent and give it to him who has 10 talents. So this man now has $11 million, $12 million to invest. Verse 29, for everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away cast that worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. That's very clearly eternal torment. We would use the word hell. So this man goes from being someone we would assume is a believer at the front end of the story where the master is calling these people his slaves and he hands them each a bag of gold or, or five bags and two bags and one bag. And so we assume they're all believers. We assume they're all God's people. We assume they're all on his side, that they're all in his household. We get to the end of the story, and we have two that are rewarded for their faithfulness and their goodness and their commitment to their master, and one that's not only not rewarded, he's what? He's condemned. 
forever to hell. In other words, he was in the master's household. He was a poser. He was a pretender. Who was his king? Himself. But how do you know it? Ultimately, it's proven by his behavior, by his fruits. Let me see if I can just distill a few principles for, for, for you from this text that I think are helpful for us and, and encouraging. Your hard work, number one, shows genuine love and faith in Christ. Make it say genuine love for and faith in Christ. Your hard work, I don't know that I need to explain it, but let me just kind of amplify the sentence, kind of like amplified Bible here. Your hard work for the Lord and his people shows your love for the Lord and your faith in the Lord, period. You guys got that? So if you're like, you look back over the last month and you're, you're coasting or laboring hard, it says something about what you care about. It's not wrong to take vacations, to have rest periods. When you have a really horrible, nasty, tough week and you get to Saturday and you chill Saturday, it's not like, hey, you don't love Jesus. But we need to recognize that Jesus is particularly talking about his kingdom. So he hands you your bag of gold, your influence, your words, your time, uh, the resources he's put at your disposal to care for people around you. He gives you all of this. How you use it for him shows your love for him and your faith in him. So that if you do nothing wicked, Jesus would look at you and say, you're a wicked and lazy servant. Or, you're a good and faithful servant. Not on the basis of what you think in your heart, but on the basis of your fruit, your heart gets revealed. Well, let's acknowledge that the lazy life is a life about me. And I, I want to clarify, there are, there are good things in life that are ways to serve God that aren't directly serving him but I think they can eclipse serving God's people. Some of you are diligent, diligent employees. You work hard for your company, especially you know, some of you who are more management level where you don't escape the job. It follows you home, and you work hard. Don't think that your hard work is quite the same as hard work for Jesus when it's only for your employer or a paycheck. So be careful that you leverage that job, that employer's relationship with you, that you leverage it for Christ, not merely for the paycheck it gives you or for the um, security that the job can give you. Maybe I can just tease that out a little bit more. If, I, uh, if I'm middle-level middle management where I have the guy above me just putting tons of work on my desk, I can find a lot of security and a lot of identity in doing a fantastic job. And Jesus gets nothing. I could also be lazy at work, and Jesus gets nothing. But I've got to take that job that the Lord has entrusted me to as kind of part of that bag of gold, and I have the obligation to invest in my relationships with coworkers and even my relationship with how much time at work I'm spending. I have the obligation to make sure that I am seeking God's will 
and trying to honor Jesus in that workplace. And that doesn't come just simply through working hard. Nor does it come by being lazy or indifferent to the work because I'm about Jesus' business. That's garbage. You should be a hard worker for your boss. But I I have got to take this job as something bigger than just this job. I'm rubbing shoulders with people who will live somewhere forever in heaven or hell. If this job is an investment vehicle so that I can have more resources, those resources can't just be for me. So maybe you're in the type of job where you drop in 65 hours in that week and now you have extra cash. Well, where are you putting that extra cash? Because I know my heart, it's like, oh man, I can give more to Jesus. And then it's like Jesus gets a little bit extra. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm looking at a vacation house. Okay, I, I just want to make clear that good things like a job are part of the bag of gold. They're meant to be leveraged for Jesus. They are not the same thing as doing something for Jesus. Family is the same way. We love our families, and you should love your families. God called you to your family. But your family can be a sacred place or it can be a secular place. You can turn your children to the Lord as an act of worship to the Lord, or you can make your home about you and your kids and fun and vacation and goodness in the home. If your children grow up and love you and don't love Jesus, you're probably not pursuing Christ in the home like you should. And again, we can't control heart, so in the middle of that, we're going to have people within this church who raise up children who don't follow Jesus. We get it. But are you raising them to follow him? Are you investing your home into eternity? Or are you investing in your home just for the sake of your kids and your family for your sake? And the reason I say that is because I'm going to come back to this thought. Your hard work shows genuine love for and faith in Christ. And so we want to make sure we take these good things and very deliberately and purposefully invest them in eternity. Number two, we work hard because he's coming again. Like the whole parable, what is the master doing? Here's your bag of gold. I'm going to leave for a little bit. I'm coming back. The whole context of Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus is coming again. So this parable is about Jesus' return, and he has entrusted to us incredible, valuable things for us to use for his glory, to seek his kingdom first. I think Ephesians 5 says that we redeem the time because these days are troubled. So we work hard because he's coming again. All of these servants had a response by the Lord, didn't they? Welcome into the joy of your Lord. Excellent job, good and faithful servant. You will be put over a lot. Or, you wicked, lazy servant. You'll be put in a place of darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everyone was rewarded because Jesus came back. I think in the interim, we don't see that. And that's Jesus' point. He is equipping us in this moment as he's speaking to his disciples because they know he's about ready to leave according to his words. And he's returning. And he has given them a few parables. One of them is, hey, be careful that you don't presume I'm never coming back or that it's going to be so long you can do whatever you want. 
On the other hand, make sure that you don't just think that this faith thing is just a quick flash in the pan. It is a long-term commitment to follow your Lord whatever comes. And this one is one of those long-term ones right there in verse 18. Didn't he say, after a long while, the master returns? He's equipping us to know that his coming may not be immediately after his death and resurrection. It may be a long time. Some of us may not have uh, the opportunity to see the Lord come back. And frankly, our grandchildren may not see him come back. And their grandchildren may not see him come back. But Jesus could come back tomorrow. And when he does, your bag of gold is going to be accounted for. Hard work. Or maybe I should say work hard because he is coming for you. <laughs> that sounded like a threat. <laughs> he is coming for you. Maybe it is if you're the lazy one. But if, if you're one of his sweet and faithful ones to know that he is coming for your sake and for your good to give you eternal glory and reward, then when, he, when I say he's coming for you, it has an entirely different meaning, doesn't it? He's coming for his people to redeem them and rescue them from this world. Finally, point number three here. Privilege does not produce hard work. The last three years, the word privilege has been pounded into the conscience of the American mind. So, I remember having a conversation a little while ago about privilege, and my response is, well, I'm very privileged. i just be honest. If you're in this room and you've heard about the grace of God, you are in the most privileged class that's ever lived. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you are deeply privileged. I think, I think the debate that's going on in our culture misses so much of, of what Jesus pushes in this text. It's valuable for us just to recognize that in the context of this text, Jesus, who is the righteous, unimpeachable, perfect injustice king, gives different bags of gold to his slaves. One, two, five. So when I hear people talk about privilege, I'm thinking, yeah, have they read the Bible? Right, like, who gave you privilege in this text? Jesus. Is that an act of injustice by him? You better not say yes. Right, like, he is the perfect king. He is the holy king. Justice is defined by him. It does not define him. If you want to know how to define justice, you start with Jesus. You don't start with the idea of justice. And if, if justice and Jesus don't match up, it's because your definition of justice is incorrect. Okay, so we look at this text, and the just king hands out different elements of privilege. Did the, did the one who received only a singular bag of gold have the right to say, you've been unjust, King Jesus. No way. No way. Privilege does not produce hard work. Everyone was accountable to the king for what he entrusted to them. What was their job to do with what he gave them? 
again, the deep theological words, work hard. I don't know what bag of gold you hold. I don't know how much our God has given you. Some of you might be theological geniuses. And you just love reading comic books. And you're just bearing your bag of gold. I don't think Jesus cares about the color of your skin. He cares about the bag of gold he gave you. Some of you have all sorts of opportunity in front of you, and you can't stop watching TV. And some of you, you're poor. You're not very smart. You have a lot of responsibilities that keep you from being able to just like pursue church ministry like you want. And you're just investing and working hard for the king. In this text, Jesus' point is that we all are accountable to him to work hard and we can't look at the other person next to us and be like, man, they got a bigger bag of gold than me. I deserve more, Jesus. But our culture is telling us that if we start out differently, that somehow the playing field is unfair, that there's been an injustice. This is not true. I would just suggest to you that if you find that the playing field has given you favor, you better buckle up and work hard. And if you look around and you're like, man, I, I, I just feel like everyone else has been given so much and I have just such a hard time with the simple things, with whatever God's given you, work hard. Work hard at having your mind sharp to encourage others and point them to the grace of Christ. Work hard to make sure your home is filled with the joy of Christ as you respond to trials and blessings. Work hard to make sure that you call people to join you in praying to your Savior. Work hard to point unbelievers to the goodness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Work hard. Jesus, in the next um, development of this passage, is going to speak to how we actually can do this leveraging of our resources. And I'll say something like this. You visited me in prison. You gave me a cup of cold water. We're going to say, when did we do this? And he will tell us when. When you did it to one of my people. And so we know what God is calling to us to do with our bag of gold. It is to advance these people around us in godliness it is to hold them before the throne of grace that God would be kind to them. It is to expand the, the borders and the size of this church, not for Crossway's sake, but for Christ's sake. It is to share with others the love of Christ, that they might know him and be saved from their sin. This is the call of investment in this passage. Work hard. I've been reading two books simultaneously. I'm actually not sure which book I got this from, so forgive me for not citing the author. But I was really convicted because they were talking about productivity. And they basically said, make sure you have something to do with you at all times because there's so many dead moments in life. You know, where you're sitting there in the checkout line and there's like one person in all of Walmart checking people out. You're stuck for 10 minutes going, what is wrong with this place? Instead of sitting there for 10 minutes complaining, do something. And it went through a whole bunch of just life stuff where you should always be productive. And by the end, I'm like, oh, man, I'm so lazy. I stand at Walmart and I don't do anything. 
Like, I was really convicted. And then I'm like doing this text. I'm thinking, I have so much dead time. I'm wasting. And it's the king's time. It's his bag of gold I'm holding. And then there's opportunities with you all. And I'm sitting there talking about the Packers. And I know it's like right under Jesus' kingdom, but it's under his kingdom. Right? Like, like it's not there. And, and my whole life can be consumed in good things, but not God things. I could spend money on looking nicer, making sure my kids have the latest opportunities to play in sports. But am I pushing them to Jesus? Am I working hard with what God has given to me? This passage is intended to give us hope. This passage is intended to remind us of this thought. In 1 Corinthians 15, rather than focusing on the return of Jesus, the Apostle Paul is focusing on the afterlife with the resurrection. But the theology intertwines because the point is the same. There's more coming. Right? Like, this is just the prelude. Our life now is like going to a Broadway show where we're sitting there and everyone's kind of mingling and the band is playing the obnoxious warm-up stuff, right? Like the tube is playing something different than the flute and you think this is it. You're sitting there like, shh, I'm listening. <laughs> They're looking at you like, what? This isn't the show. This is the prelude to the real thing. Right now, we are in the prelude. And some of you think that this is everything the way you're living. Like, this is the show. And so your whole life is invested in listening to the band warm-up. And the real show is coming. The real show is coming. That's why he can say millions of dollars is little compared to what's coming. Live for heaven by working hard today. Remember, your hard work is a demonstration of your love and faith in Christ. So if you don't feel motivated, start there. Right? Don't just start by muscling. I'm kind of one of those guys that's like, when life gets hard, I just kind of put my head down and just keep walking. I just keep walking. Maybe there's a worship problem in Mark's heart when I feel like quitting or I'm discouraged. And I need to cultivate a love and a faith in Christ. Work hard because he's coming again. It is so worth it to give yourself to Jesus. It is worth it to discipline your child the 812th time they disobey. It's worth it to talk to your neighbor who may never talk to you again when you open the door to a conversation about Jesus Christ. It's worth it because he's coming again. And don't use either your great privilege for an excuse to coast or your little privilege for an excuse to be lazy. You know, like the really smart kids in school coast. Some of you are like, wait, what? They didn't do their homework? No. Because they just get it, and they get A's easy. And they're like, man, I worked hard for my D's. Right? Like, some of you are thinking that right now. You're like, wait, they didn't work as hard as me? No, they coasted. My obnoxious brother, brother was one of those guys. He never studied even through med school. Some of you, you're spiritually, you're like, God, these treasures 
and you're just coasting on the talent, the gifts, the mind, the resources God's given you, and you're lazy-ish. Put a little dose of work in there. And you're excelling people around you, and you're like, look, I'm doing good, people. Work hard. Sometimes you, some of you are like, man, I work like crazy for my D's. I'm just going to quit because I feel like I just can't offer as much as the guy next to me. Listen, that is not the measure. When your Lord comes back and he looks at you and you've worked hard with your little dollar bill because that's all you have, you know what he's going to say? Well done. Excellent work. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that I have prepared for you. If you've worked hard, that is what your king will say. If you love him, that is what he'll say. If you have worked hard because he's coming again, that is what he will say. If you don't care about Jesus or his kingdom, hear very clearly the warning tone of this text. He's coming again, and he judges. He judges fairly and righteously. And that will not go well for those of us who are lazy. Because laziness proves our faithlessness. It proves our lovelessness. Laziness proves that we really don't think he's coming back. Laziness proves that we don't think he really cares. May God protect us from that because he cares, he loves us, and he rewards so richly those who are faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Help us to remember this week to work hard. Lord, I ask that you would help us to remember in those moments of quietness that as we open up your word and try to understand your will for us, that we're also equipping ourselves to be your servants with others. Father, I pray that you would strip away some of the selfishness which with we with which we come to your scriptures, that you would give these fathers in this room a passion to know what your Bible says so that they can shepherd their homes, so that they can work hard in their household to encourage their wife who's buried under the obligations of being a mom and a wife and a worker. Lord, I ask that you would give our teenagers a willingness to begin investing for heaven, knowing that they too are accountable for the days of high school and college. That they would not consider their years right now to be merely just a time to learn, but also, Lord, that they would recognize you have put in front of them an opportunity to use their gifts, their abilities, their time, their words, and their relationships, and their influence for your sake, not merely for their joy. Lord, I, I ask that you would encourage us. The incredible gift of time you've given us today could end tonight. You could call us home and we'd have no more days to serve you. We'd have no more conversations to speak to our children. We'd have no second chances to interact with our neighbor and call them to trust in Jesus. The Lord, help us to use today. Help us to be faithful, to be diligent in the moments you've given us. I also ask that you'd encourage those that might be thinking that they have very little to offer. Help them to recognize that you've given to them exactly what you want them to hold. And that in your righteousness, you've given to them the right 
gifts and abilities and time to serve you. Energize their work, Lord. Give them hope that there is great reward in heaven for those who labor for you in this life. Father, for those who might be coasting because you have granted them so much that they can accomplish more than others with just a little bit of effort, would you rebuke their pride and cause them to turn to Christ and see how much more they could do for their Savior if they were to invest all the gifts that he has given to them. Lord, help each one of us to be remembering the sweetness and the goodness of your return. When you come back and you welcome us and you reward us, Lord, it will be so worth the time and the energy and the sacrifices. The Lord, strengthen our faith that we might see with clear eyes the future, the return of the King, so that when he comes in glory, we will be honored, we will receive praise from our King, and will be granted positions of great honor because of our great service today. Lord, help us to remember that those who are last will one day be first, so that we would make ourselves a servant to all of your people, a slave to the crown, that we might live to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.